All right, you guys. Well, we're going to get into the teaching of the Word today. We uh, have been in a teaching series called Real Love, right? We want to look at love and specifically how love functions in relationships. And so we started on Valentine's Day. My wife did an amazing job teaching us about agape love and, and what that love looks like as we are in relationship, whether it's a dating relationship or a marriage relationship. And then last Sunday, we looked at the first two chapters of Song of Solomon. And in the first two chapters, this young couple is in their dating phase, their courtship phase. And so we looked at how all three types of love, right? Agape love, which is unconditional, sacrificial love. We looked at friendship love, which is the kind of love that builds a foundation in relationships. And we looked at romantic love, which is the passion and the fire that we feel for one another. And how it's developing all three types of those loves that's going to help help us to have thriving relationships and thriving marriages. And so if you missed either of those two messages, you can go to our podcast or you can go to our, our website and you can get caught up on those. Today is going to be part three and it's going to be the final part of the series. And we're going to look at faithful love. We want to look at love that will last a lifetime. And so obviously we're specifically talking about marriage and, and about love within a marriage that could last a lifetime. And so if you've got your notes, you can find the notes inside the bulletin that you got on the way in. On our digital campus, you can find the notes attached to the video on our website. The notes are in our church app. They're also attached to the podcast and the audio. So you can get your hands on the notes and work through the notes together with us. But here's our big picture point. Our big picture point is this. A lifelong marriage filled with love is not something we can just hope for. It's something we have to work for. A lifelong marriage filled with love is not just something we hope for. It's something we have to work for. Right? It's not just going to happen. You're not just going to magically have an amazing marriage. we got to put the work in, right? I mean, I could hope that I could bench press 300 pounds. But if I'm not willing to get into the gym and put the work in, I can hope all I want. I'm never going to bench press 300 pounds. But when I'm willing to put the work in, I can have what I hope for. And that's what I want to encourage you. There's a story of a gal who uh, noticed how romantic her grandfather was. And her grandfather was 95 years old, and, 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 and she saw him every day with his wife, just always using the sweetest names, right? Always saying the nicest things. He just always called his wife, you know, hey, darling, hey, sweetie, hey there, honey pie, hey, baby. And, and this woman was just so amazed that seeing her grandfather and her grandmother at such an advanced age, but still being so romantic, and she just, she wanted that so desperately, so so one day, as she was talking with her grandpa, she asked him, she said, Grandpa, I see you every day using all these sweet names for grandma and being so romantic. She said, what's your secret? What's the secret to your magic? And her grandpa looked at her and said, well, I forgot her name 10 years ago, and I've been too afraid to ask. All right, so... All right, we want to talk about putting the work in so that we still have some magic when we're in our 90s. All right, we want a marriage that lasts. So we read the Song of Solomon this week in our Rooted Bible reading calendar, right? And, and the Song of Solomon is a steamy, passionate book, 
right? I mean, we read it this week, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 7. The, the sensuality and the sexuality and the passion in these chapters is unmatched anywhere else in the Bible. And so we can read through this, and it's an amazing love story and the compliments that they're giving each other, right? Like at the end of chapter 5, it almost got ridiculous, right? She's complimenting her husband, and she's just like, your abs are like fine carved ivory, and your legs are like alabaster set upon gold standards. And it's like, stop it! Jeez! All right. So this is an amazing book, and hopefully you enjoyed reading it this week. Hopefully you read some of it with your spouse this week, and it got a little spicy. Come on. Uh, Hopefully you got something out of reading the Song of Solomon this week. But what I want to talk about is maybe the elephant in the room when we read the Song of Solomon, that there's one thing that stands out as being terribly off, terribly wrong as we read this. And that is that our main character in the story is Solomon. And we can understand that this was his first love and that this was his first marriage and he was so passionate. But what we know about Solomon is that he did not stay faithful to this amazing Shulamite woman. That all of this romance and all of this passion that we read about in the Song of Solomon, we know that it didn't last. That by the end of his life, King Solomon had a thousand women at his beck and call. He got so consumed in his power as king and so consumed in the lust of his flesh that he gave himself away completely and did not stay faithful to this marriage. And so as we read the Song of Solomon, yes, we need to embrace the passion and the sexuality that is important for our marriages. But more than anything, we want to have a marriage that lasts. Listen to this. Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Solomon says this. He's speaking to his, his young bride. And he says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maiden saw her and called her blessed, right? He is, he is talking about, hey, listen, you can line up 60 queens. You can have a countless number of virgins, and baby, you're the only one I want. You stand apart. You're the only one that matters, right? This, these are the words of a young man who is in love with his wife. In chapter 7 and verses 8 and 9, in the midst of imagery that is very sexual, right? Solomon says this, May your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Right? What is he saying to his young bride? He's saying that he wants her body, he wants his sexual encounters with her to be completely satisfying to him. Right? He wants it to be the best wine, the, the best fruits, the, the, the most fragrant. Like, so, so what we see here from Solomon in the Song of Solomon is we see a young man who wants to have a marriage that lasts a lifetime. He wants his young bride to be the only one that ever catches his eye. He wants his young bride to be the only one that ever pleases him. He wants this for a lifetime. And yet what he wanted and what he ended up with were two completely different things. And that's why I want to encourage us today that we can't just want a good marriage. We can't just hope for a marriage that lasts a lifetime. We can't just hope that it's going to stick it out. 
We got to put the work in to see this thing stick it out and to see this thing make it all the way through. Are you guys tracking with me? Are you feeling it? All right. So listen, when we read in the Old Testament, we read about all these kings that had multiple wives, right? We read about all these men that kind of had a double standard that they could have as many wives as they wanted, but the woman could only have one husband. And, and listen, I, I want to make clear that in the Bible, there's two different truths in the Bible, all right? There's what we call descriptive truth, and there's what we call prescriptive truth, all right? Descriptive truth simply means that the Bible was describing what was happening, It doesn't mean that God was endorsing it. It doesn't mean that God was okay with it. It just means that the Bible was describing what was happening. That is descriptive truth. Prescriptive truth is when the Bible tells us what God expects, when the Bible tells us what God says is good, when the Bible tells us what God says is true. That's prescriptive truth, right? So when we read about all these men that had multiple wives, that didn't stay faithful, that, that uh, pursued prostitutes and all of this stuff. Listen, that is descriptive truth. That is describing what happened. And even though many of these men were men of God, they were broken men of God. And they did not live to the ideal of what God desired. Just because the Bible described it doesn't mean that God endorsed it. And it doesn't mean that God was okay with it. In fact, it says over and over again that God was not okay with it. But when we get to prescriptive truth, when God tells us what is true and what is good and what is holy... What we see is this, 1 Corinthians 7, 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, singular. And each woman is to have her own husband, singular. Right? What did Jesus say when he was asked about marriage? He said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? That's all capitalized because that's Jesus quoting the Old Testament. That's Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. And Jesus said, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so what we see, the prescriptive truth of the Bible is one man and one woman coming together, making a commitment to each other, and then staying together for life and not looking to any other. That's the prescriptive truth of the Bible. That is the ideal of our marriages, and that is what we want to see happen. And so what I'm going to try to accomplish today is I'm going to try to inspire all of us to be willing to put some more work in on our marriages. Right? That's my goal. Just so you know here, by the end of this message, my goal is that all of us are going to be willing to put some more work in on our marriages. So that means if you're here and you're single, there's still some work you can put in now in your single years before you're married that can still set you up for success now. And if you're here and you're older and you're singled and, and you don't plan on getting married... Then for the next 20 minutes, I just want you to pray for everybody else while I'm preaching. Hallelujah. Okay, because this may not apply to you, but you know what? You're a part of our church body, and, and I still want you to be a part of everything that God is doing in our church body. Amen? So let's be willing to put some work in. So you can see in your notes, I want to give you four things, four principles about keeping your marriage for a lifetime, four areas that we can put some work in on 
to make sure that our marriages can last. And listen, I understand that even across this sanctuary and, and, and even to those folks outside the sanctuary, that we have marriages in all different places. All right? I know right now we have some marriages that are broken, just teetering on the edge. And ideally, both people would be willing to put the work in. But if they're not, hey, God has you here for a reason. And God is challenging you to do what you need to do to put the work in. But ideally, if both people are willing to put the work in, then maybe we can see marriages that are teetering on the edge move towards restoration. Maybe we can see marriages that are just okay become really good. right? Maybe we can see marriages that are really good become great. And listen, if your marriage is great, come on, work on making your marriage epic, all right? Don't, don't settle for anywhere that you are. Listen, being married and having a healthy marriage is like roller skating uphill. As long as you're putting the work in, you're going to keep getting higher and higher. But the moment you become complacent and stop putting the work in is when you start rolling backwards. So let's keep putting the work in, no matter where our marriages are at. Come on, let's look at this. Number one. View your spouse as a gift from God. View your spouse as a gift from God. When we are in the trenches of marriage, when we are just in the struggles of everyday life and, and, and we're dealing with the things that annoy us or our, our spouse's weaknesses are coming out and, and, and they're on display or we're just going through a rough patch in life and, 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 you know, whether it's finances or family or this pandemic or whatever the case may be. When we're in the trenches, what tends to happen is we tend to focus on the things about our spouse that annoy us. We tend to focus on the things about our spouse that we wish we could fix that we wish we could change. We tend to focus on their weaknesses, right? We, we get stuck with the wrong mindset. And the longer we stay in that mindset, the more bitterness builds up, the more frustration builds up. Let's listen to some other words from Solomon, right? So we heard from Solomon that he wanted this marriage to be amazing, but it didn't turn out amazing. Solomon writes some more at the end of his life and in his writing at the end of his life, you can hear the regret in his voice. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 9. He says this, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. All right, so you can hear the cynicism in Solomon's voice when he says things like your fleeting life. Your vain life. All this is vanity, right? That's what Solomon came to after giving himself to a thousand women and, and, and getting caught up in all of this sexuality. At the end of his life, he realized it was all a waste. What he really wished he had done was enjoy his life with the woman that he loved at the beginning. Because that woman that you love at the beginning is a reward in your life. In the midst of your labors and your toils and your struggles, that wife is a reward. Solomon also wrote Proverbs 5.18 when he said, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Even if you're not a youth anymore, but she's still your wife. Rejoice. 
So I want to encourage us today. One step we can take in the work that we need to put in is every day view your spouse as a gift from God. What that means is that we stop lamenting what our spouse is not and we start rejoicing in the gift that they are. Instead of looking at our spouse and saying, I wish they were this. I wish they would stop doing this. I wish they'd stop being so anointing in this way. I wish they'd get better here. And instead, start rejoicing in the gifts of God that you do see in your spouse and start rejoicing in the gift that God has given you in your marriage. And listen, I understand the more broken your marriage is, the harder this is to do. But this is our challenge. We need to shift our mindset and find that positive place where we can rejoice in the person that God has given us. That we can rejoice in them so at the end of our lives we don't have the regret of Solomon who says, I wish I had celebrated earlier what I had had so that I didn't go looking for something else. We need to rejoice in what we have so that we don't go looking for something else. And that brings us to number two, the work that we need to put in for our marriage. We need to water our own grass. We need to water our own grass. What am I talking about? Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. This is a part of the Ten Commandments, right? We all know the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You are not supposed to long after things that don't belong to you. Man, my neighbor's got better servants than me. My neighbor's got better donkeys than me. My neighbor's got a better house than me. My neighbor's got a better marriage than me. You know, whatever the case may be, we're not supposed to long for what doesn't belong to us. It was the author and columnist Irma Bombeck who coined the phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Things always look better when we're looking at what somebody else has instead of what we're looking at what we have. It was also an author and a columnist named Teresa Bloomingdale who said this, of course the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Why do you think the neighbors put the fence up? Right? Your neighbor put the fence up so that your dead wheat field grass wouldn't touch their nice green grass. Of course the grass is greener on the other side. But what we need to stop doing is stop looking over the fence at some green grass on the other side and make a decision to do what it takes to make the grass green where we're already standing. Frank Sonnenberg said it like this, if the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, chances are it's getting better care. And you say, well, I wish I had that grass. Well, you know what would happen if you had that grass? You'd kill it just like you already killed your own grass. And you say, if I just had another relationship, that relationship would be better than the one I'm stuck in now. No, what would happen if you had another relationship is you would make it just as unhealthy as you're making it now. We got to stop looking over the fence because we're unhappy with our present relationship. We're unhappy with where we're currently at. And so we wish we had something better. Maybe there's someone else I can fall in love with. Maybe I can get out of this and I can go get a better relationship. No. The grass is greener because it's getting better care. 
So what do we need to do instead? We need to stop looking over the fence, and we need to start taking care of our own lawn. Pastor Rick Warren said, where the grass is greener, the water bill is higher. Right? Where the grass is greener, the water bill is higher. Because you got to water your grass. I remember when we were in Vancouver, Washington, one of the first home groups that we started going to was at Andy and Carrie's house. And one of the things I remember about Andy and Carrie's house is every time we got there was looking across the street and seeing their neighbor. Their neighbor's front lawn was the most immaculate lawn I have ever seen. Right? There was not a weed to be seen. There was not a blade of grass out of place. But what I noticed is every Tuesday evening when we got to Andy and Carrie's house is that the neighbor was outside working on his lawn, and this guy was meticulous, right? This guy didn't just have the lawnmower out. He had the scissors out, all right? He was on the edge of the lawn trimming it with scissors to make sure the edge was just right, and he was always out there weeding it and watering it and feeding it and mowing it and taking care of it, and I imagine if he was doing that every Tuesday when we got there, he was probably doing it every Wednesday and every Thursday and every Friday, and you could look across the street and say, man, that's gorgeous. I wish I had that lawn. Well, if you want that lawn, you got to put the work in that that guy's putting in. And so we can't just say, I wish I had a healthy marriage like so-and-so. I wish I had a better relationship like they do. No, what we need to do is start watering our own grass. What does that look like? That looks like doing some things that's going to restoke the love and the romance and the communication and the relationship in our marriage. That might mean you got to go get some marital counseling. Again, both people have to be willing, but if they're both willing, maybe you've got to go get some marital counseling. That might mean, because listen, you can't change your spouse. You can't change your spouse, but you can work on yourself. And so maybe part of watering your own lawn is working on yourself and your own weaknesses. Right? Maybe watering your lawn is beginning to speak your spouse's love language and beginning to love your spouse in such a way that they can receive what you're trying to give them. Watering your own lawn might be that you and your spouse are willing to begin to deal with some conflicts and some issues and some communication that you've been avoiding for years. Right? Remember what we learned last week, catch the little foxes before they eat the entire vineyard. We've got to deal with our foxes. Maybe watering our own lawn is that you and your spouse begin to pray together every morning or every night. Maybe it's that you and your spouse begin to read the Bible together every day and dig into the Word together. Right? right? Maybe, there, there, I could go on and on. It might look a little different for all of us, but we need to get our eyes off of the neighbor's lawn, and we need to start watering our own lawn and doing what it takes to see our own grass become green. You guys with me? Number three, your sexual experience should only include your spouse. Your sexual experience should only include your spouse. Leviticus 18.20 makes it pretty clear. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife. That's pretty straightforward. How about Hebrews 13.4? Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
Come on, our marriage is to be held in honor. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Our only sexual experience should include our spouse. And so this is some work that we could begin to put in. Because if we're having any sort of sexual experience apart from our spouse, we need to begin to put the the boundaries and the roadblocks in place to stop that from happening. Right? So if you are pleasing yourself apart from your spouse, come on, I'm just being real here. If you're pleasing yourself apart from your spouse, we need to stop that. That's not what God intended. That's not love. That's not marriage. If you're putting things into your eyeballs that are sexual experiences that are separate from your spouse, whether that's looking at pornography, whether that's watching movies that are showing people having sex, right? If you're putting things into your mind that are sexual experiences separate from your spouse, right? If you're reading hot, steamy romance novels that are depicting people having sex and you are living through those sexual encounters, that's not giving us a healthy marriage. This is stuff that we need to deal with. Our only sexual experience should be with our spouse, right? It means we shouldn't imagine other people. We shouldn't fantasize about other people. We shouldn't watch other people. We shouldn't allow those things to come into our mind. It should only be with our spouse. So a lot of us will find healing in our marriage when we begin to put the work in on this area of our lives. How do we put this work in? We need to use boundaries and physical reminders to protect our body, to protect our eyes, to protect our words, to protect our thoughts, to keep sex within the confines of our marriage. Right? In Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 8, we read that the Shulamite woman in verse 6 said, Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as severe as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Right? What is she saying? She's saying, Set me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. What does this mean? Well, in the biblical days that this was written, the seal was the sign of ownership. That if you put your seal on something, that meant that you owned it, right? If you put your seal on something, that identified it, right? It's almost, uh, so when she says, put me as a seal on your heart, what she was saying is, Solomon, put a reminder upon your heart that your heart belongs to me and to me alone and not to anybody else. So what do we need? We need to put a seal upon our bodies. We need to put a seal upon our hearts, a seal upon our eyes, a reminder that we belong to one person and one person alone, and our encounters should only include that person. The most obvious one is that we wear a ring, right? And many times we just forget about the ring. It's just a normal part of our lives because we got the ring on. But we can look at that ring every day and let that ring be a reminder, I only belong to one person and I should only be having sexual experiences with that one person. We can use other physical reminders. Put a picture of your spouse on the home screen of your phone, on the home screen of your iPad, on the home screen of your computer. So that every time you turn on your phone or your computer, the first thing you see is your spouse. And when you see your spouse, you're reminded, I belong to them and I am not going to use this device to have a sexual encounter with anybody else. I belong to them.
We need to start putting this work in. We need to start setting boundaries up. Now, listen, if, 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 if your delve into pornography has reached the level of an addiction, you're going to need some help. You're going to need some people to walk through it with you and hold you accountable. You're going to need some people to help set up some boundaries in your life so that you can overcome that. But again, whether it's something you're watching, something you're reading, something you're fantasizing about, whatever the case may be, we need to begin to put boundaries in place to protect our marriages so that we can find sexual health in our marriages. Nothing will tear our marriages apart faster than not being sexually faithful to the one you made covenant with. Man, it is quiet in here today. Hallelujah. People are nervous. Come on. That's okay as long as you're receiving this. Number four, let's finish with this one. Marriage is about something bigger than your happiness. Marriage is about something bigger than your happiness, right? This is some work that we could begin to put in. Look at Isaiah 54, 5. It says, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth, right? It's, it's using the imagery of marriage to help us to understand our relationship with God, that our husband is our maker, the Lord of hosts, the God of the universe, that we are in covenant relationship with Him, and therefore our marriages on earth should be a reflection of our covenant relationship with God. Isaiah says it further in chapter 62 and verse 5. He says, For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Again, marriage is a reflection of our relationship with God. In the New Testament, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Our marriages represent something bigger than just simply our happiness. Our marriages are a reflection of our relationship with God. Our marriages are a reflection of how the kingdom of God works in this world. And God wants to use our marriages to advance His kingdom and His purposes. So what does this mean? It means that we take on the challenge to view our marriage in light of God's kingdom and God's purposes. What does God want to do through my marriage? What does God want to do with my marriage? What kind of ministry is going to take place because of my marriage? What lives are going to be touched because of the way that I love my spouse? And it becomes bigger than just our happiness. Because if it's just about our happiness, well, then when we're not happy, it's not going to be worth the price we have to pay to work towards that happiness. It's not going to be worth the effort and the difficulty and the struggle and the deep conversations and the time that we're going to have to invest to restore our relationship and rekindle our love and to keep pressing on. It's not going to be worth it. Happiness is not enough of a motivation to make your marriage last a lifetime. It's not. What is enough of a motivation is seeing your marriage as something bigger 
Something in the hands of God. Something as a part of God's kingdom. Something as a part of his purposes and his plan for your life. And when we get a bigger picture for our marriage, then we're willing to fight for it. We're willing to stand for it. We're willing to work through the hard times. We're willing to have the deep conversations. We're willing to humble ourselves and and, and deal with our weaknesses. We're willing to do that because our marriage is something bigger. Our marriage is something bigger. Come on, let's fight for our marriages. Let's fight for our marriages. Let's stand for our marriages. Let's fight for marriages that last. Listen, I understand that some relationships have gotten so unhealthy and so unsafe that it's important for you to separate yourself from that situation. And if somebody's in a situation that's abusive or unsafe... I will always advise that person to remove themselves from the situation. But just because you remove yourself from the situation doesn't mean that you've given up on your marriage. You've got to take some steps to protect yourself, and if there's children involved, to protect your children. But it doesn't mean you have to give up on your marriage. You can fight for your marriage from a distance. You can stand for your marriage from a distance. You don't have to keep putting yourself in harm's way. You don't have to keep uh, being manipulated and lied to and and spoken evil of. You don't have to keep putting yourself in a situation where you're going to get hit or hurt or your children are going to get hit or hurt. You don't have to keep doing that. You can separate yourself from the situation. But that doesn't mean you have to give up. God can do miracles. So come on, let's be a people that are going to fight for God's will in our marriages, not just our happiness, not what we want, but what God wants. God, what do you want me to do in this situation? Now listen, the Bible says there is a time when you may choose divorce. And that time is if your husband or your wife is repeatedly cheating on you. If your husband or wife is repeatedly cheating on you, the Bible says you are set free from your covenant. Now, it doesn't mean you have to get a divorce. Even if your husband or wife is repeatedly cheating on you, you may still choose to stand for your marriage and fight for your marriage. Right? But that's the only time the Bible says that you can pursue a divorce. Otherwise, you got to keep fighting for your marriage. You got to keep fighting for your marriage. The Bible says if your spouse doesn't believe in God and they abandon you, then you're set free from your covenant. But that's not you pursuing it. That's them that left. The only reason in the Bible that we can pursue a divorce is if our spouse is repeatedly cheating on us. Anything else, we got to work through it. Anything else, we got to make a stand for our marriage. Anything else, we got to fight for it. If we have to separate ourselves to keep our family safe, then we will separate ourselves, but we will keep standing and we will keep fighting and we will keep putting the work in and we will keep believing for a lifelong marriage. Come on, this is the part where somebody can shout right now. Come on, somebody say something. Hallelujah. Let me have the worship team come back up. We're going to wrap up today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God's grace is sufficient. There is a beautiful, wonderful, healthy marriage for you where you love and respect one another, where you treat one another properly, where you're so thrilled to share your life together, where there is romance and passion brimming over in your marriage. It is there, but we can't just hope for it. We got to work for it. We got to pray for it. We got to persevere for it. We got to be willing to do the work.
Come on, Kauai Bible Church, let's not settle for mediocrity. Let's not settle for just okay. Let's believe for great marriages. Let's believe for healthy marriages. Let's believe for marriages that when people look at us, they want to know what is God doing. They want to know what does it take for me to have God in my life. They want to know how can I receive Christ Jesus in my life. Because what I see in your marriage is what I want. What I see in your hope, what I see in your perseverance is what I want. Let's let our marriages declare the gospel. Let our marriages be a testimony for the kingdom of God. Amen? Will you stand together with me? Come on. We can give, the, give a hand clap, give a shout, give a praise. Woo! Awesome. Yeah, it was quiet today, all right? I don't know if that was just because we're, we're touching on some deep things. We're dealing with some issues. But it was quiet today, but I pray that you are inspired today to put some work in whether you're going to put some work in from a distance or whether the two of you are putting some work in together. Let's put the work in to have great marriages, to have epic marriages. Can I pray for you? Jesus. God, I pray for everybody here today. I pray for everybody on our digital campus hearing this message, everybody on our podcast. God, I pray that these words would be like arrows And that, Lord, they would pierce our hearts. And that every one of us, Lord, from the youngest to the oldest, from those that are still single to the newlyweds, to those that have been married for 50 years, every one of us, Lord, you would speak to our hearts right now. Lord, what are you telling us to do? Lord, what are you calling us to do? Where is the work that we need to put in, Lord? God, where do we need to make a change? Lord, where do we need help? Speak to us today, Lord. Speak to us and then challenge us, Lord. Empower us by your spirit to begin to put that work in, in Jesus' name. God, empower us. God, empower us to begin to have difficult conversations. Lord, cause us to begin to draw near to you. That, Lord, as we draw near to you, God, we'll draw nearer to our spouse. That, Lord, as we soak in your love, we're going to get better at loving our spouse. So, Lord, first and foremost, we surrender ourselves to you and to your love, and we soak in your love. And then, God, I pray that out of that position of love, oh, Father, we can begin to do the things that we need to do. God, I pray for the sexual purity of our marriages. God, I pray that the marriage bed would be undefiled. I pray, Lord, where pornography and books and movies and fantasies have come in and stolen away the intimacy and the onenesses of our marriage. God, I pray that there would be a deliverance right now in Jesus' name. I pray there would be a breakthrough. I declare a new freedom. Oh, Lord God, I pray that there would be a coming together, that, Lord, there would be a casting off of these things in Jesus' name, and there would be a coming together in the purity of our marriage bed. There would be a coming together, Lord God, that you would cleanse us, that we would no longer be defiled and that our marriages would be healthy God as we practice that purity I pray for our singles here Lord I pray for the purity of their hearts and their bodies and their minds that Lord God there is a future spouse that is a gift for them and that even now they would practice the purity that they need to see a relationship in the future be successful thank you for that Jesus God, open the doors of communication. Cause us to begin to put the work in. Get our eyes off the neighbor's lawn and put our eyes back on our spouses. Lord, that we can begin to water the grass that needs watering. 
Thank you for that, Jesus. We give you all the praise, all the glory for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.